Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Hope you're well this morning. Grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter, anybody? Eight. Eight. All right. Hope you're not bored with Romans 8 yet. I doubt you are. Uh, We're continuing our study in Romans chapter 8. I told you this in week one, uh, N.T. Wright said, if the church would hoist its sails and catch the wind of Romans 8, there is no telling what might happen in that church. And I think he fully believed it. I think the possibilities are incredible. And I was thinking about it this way this week. Uh, My youngest child is two and a half, and there are a lot of things that are out of her reach and beyond her abilities. But when, when Kate is with me, right, there's a different story being told. When Kate is with me, anything is possible from her perspective, right? Anything is possible, at least to the limit of my abilities. And what we've been learning in Romans 8 so far is that life in Christ, following Jesus, isn't about my abilities. It's not about rowing hard in my strength. It's not about what I can do, but it's about raising the sails to catch the wind, the fresh wind of God's Spirit. In other words, the Christian life is about you and me learning to trust in God, to believe in His presence and His power and His ability to make the fullness of life possible for me. And today, we're going to talk about that. I think about how that applies in different situations. The things that seem impossible are impossible when God is there. I think about uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 37. This is where the angel Gabriel comes to the young teenage virgin Mary and says, you are going to have a child and he will be God's own son. And Mary, first, like I'm blown away that she just doesn't turn and run. An angel is before her. But she looks at him and says, how can this be? And I in no way think she's arguing with an angel. I think she's truly curious. How is this going to be possible? And the angel Gabriel says, well, this is how it's possible. The Holy Spirit's coming. He's coming and he will handle everything for nothing is impossible with God. And today what we're going to find is that what God desires and what God wills is always possible by his presence and his power. And there's something in our text today that we're going to learn that God wills and God desires for every one of us in this room. God wills, it's very clear in this text, God wills and he desires that you and that I would experience a particular kind of freedom. Say freedom. Freedom. God wills and God desires that you and that I would experience freedom from the power of sin over our life. And whatever God desires and whatever God wills is absolutely possible by his presence and by his power. So today, as we dive into this, we are going to talk about sin. Yes, we are in that part of Romans 8 where we are going to talk about how you and I all struggle with sin. And we're going to talk about it directly because it's that way in the text. We're going to talk about it with a lot of compassion for each other because I'll tell you the truth about you and the truth about me is that every one of us will continue to struggle with the temptation to sin every day of our life as long as we walk the face of this earth. That's facts, period. And for every Christian, there is a war waging inside of you between a spirit that has been reborn and a flesh that still remains. There is a a war going on. That's what Paul exclaims in Romans 7. My perfect Greek rendering of Romans 7.15, it kind of goes like this. Ah! 
I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired over struggling with sin in my life. And we, we saw that over the last couple of weeks. How many of you can relate to Paul in that verse? All of us, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves today. And so today what we're going to see here is why we often feel like we're living in condemnation for our sins. Even when Romans 8.1 told us, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? But we still feel it sometimes. Why do we feel it? We talked about this in week one, a little bit in week two, but ultimately because Genesis tells us that sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have you. Sin is crouching at the, door, at the door and desires to have you and me for lunch. And so what will we do? How will we face this struggle? It's really great news for us in John 14 when Jesus looks at his disciples, at his followers, and he says to them, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And this wasn't a test. He was saying, well, if you love me, what you will be doing in your life is walking in my ways, but it's good news that he doesn't leave them to figure out how to do that in their own strength. No, Jesus gives them a word of promise. John 14, 16, he says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, right? Verse 17, that is, here he is, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. And God wants the Holy Spirit to not just be a theological truth that we affirm, but to be a very real experience we have, a relationship that we delight in, a helper who is here with us and for us in our time of need. And so let's be clear about this. We talked about it last week, but if you missed us last week or you forgot, who has the presence, the help, and the power of the Holy Spirit with them? Who is it? Somebody say, every Christian. Can you say that? Every Christian has the, re has the real experiential presence and power available to you and with you. The Christian has the active, personal, experiential, living God, the Holy Spirit, with them in their life. 1 Corinthians 6, remember Paul writes to a bunch of Christians and he's reaffirming Jesus' word of promise in John 14. He says, don't you know this? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The third person of the Trinity, fully God, lives within you. You are not your own. Or in other words, Christian, you're not alone. So with that word of promise, if that is absolutely true, how does that change your experience day to day? How, with regard to how you face your struggle with sin, how does it help you face your struggle with sin to know that you're not alone, but you have fully God, the presence and power of God with you? Here's what Paul tells us this morning. So what we're going to see in our text is the Holy Spirit leads you and me, leads the Christian in a murderous war against indwelling sin in our life. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit is here to lead you in a murderous war against indwelling sin in your life. And at the very same time, he's there to give you the real experiential presence of God's fatherly love for you as an individual. This is what the Holy Spirit does to give you assurance that you are a Christian. He leads you in a murderous war against sin in your life, in your life, in my life, 
and he reassures us of God's fatherly love for us. Look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the key to really experiencing the fullness of life. And Paul, as he starts this section, he's just continuing the thoughts that he's had before. That's why it says, so then, based upon everything Paul has just said, running through the first 11 verses. In other words, he says, because Jesus came in the flesh and was the sinless son of God and took on the condemnation for your sin, he died. And because he resurrected from the grave, Christians are not stuck in this hopeless predicament of always being doomed to live according to the flesh and the sins of the flesh do not rule you. And what's more, as he says this, he gives a particular kind of language to help set or reset our minds. He uses the word obligation. Do you see it there in your text? He says obligation. Paul realizes that every Christian has the privilege to walk in, in freedom from sin through the Holy Spirit, but he also realizes that it doesn't happen naturally that we just stop sinning, that we no longer struggle with sin, that we automatically begin obeying the will and the way of God, and it just comes very easily to us. And so he says the word obligation, you're under obligation to what? To no longer live according to the flesh. God wills, God desires that you and that I would be set free from the power of sin over our life. Understand something, that, that Jesus didn't save you so that you could be at peace with your sin and that I could be at peace with my sin. God doesn't welcome you into his family just as you are to leave you just as you are. No, he saved you so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you could truly experience freedom from the oppression and the, the life-stealing joy or the stealing power of sin controlling your life. He saved you that you could walk in light and life and in freedom. Sin is no longer your master. We're under a new obligation. The obligation, it's a funny word, it's liberation. The obligation is liberation. How does that sound? It's liberation from the power of sin controlling and directing the course of your life. Here's a, a simple illustration of why God does this, because the word obligation feels like an oppressive thing that God puts us under an obligation to no longer live according to sin. Uh, last Sunday, uh, my daughter Kate came down with a fever and the stomach bug stuff. She had the chills. She was throwing up. And all afternoon, she was just shaking and miserable. And she was fine by the next day. It's one of those 24-hour things that still exist in the world. And she was better the next day. But like we should, we try to kept her, keep her separate from the other three kids all through the next day on Monday. And Elizabeth and Claire can get that, but Jessa just can't understand why she can't be with her sister. Her sister's fine now. And so she kept trying to go and play with her and bring her things and get in her face and love her and pet her and hug her and kiss her. And I'm saying, stop it. You can't play with Kate. She's sick. And so Jess is like, well, she's sick. I got to help her. And so now she wants to serve her and bring her things and, and make her feel better. And I'm like, Jesse, you have to stop. Leave Kate 
alone, and she can't conceive of why her dad wouldn't let her play with her sister. She's not being mean. I'm being nice. She can't conceive of why her dad won't let her do what she thinks is right to serve her sister. I'm helping her. So I had to get down on her level, and I had to look at her in the eyes and say, Jessa, honey, I don't want you to be sick. I don't want you to have a fever and have the chills that she had and suffer like she did yesterday. I don't want you to vomit. I don't want you to miss all the things that are laid out for you this week because you get sick. You have to stay away from her. And what I'm doing as a parent is protecting her. It's the way I provide for her. It's the way I care for her. I put her under an obligation to not go there with her sister right now. And so what Paul is saying is when God puts us under the obligation, he's talking about the joy of a good obligation that reveals the parental care and love that God the Father has for every one of his children. Now, when we look at what Paul's talking about in Romans 8, he's talking about a spiritual battle. Say, spiritual battle. Spiritual battles need spiritual strategies if we're going to face them. And so what I want to do is to unpack a spiritual strategy for facing a spiritual battle that we have with sin. And so today I want to lift up from the text two truths that will help define what I mean when I say the Spirit leads us in a murderous war against indwelling sin. Two truths that will help us to understand a framework for that murderous war and then I want to give you five tips or five ways to fight sin. According to the Bible, what we're given to help us face indwelling sin in our life. So part one and part two. Part one, what does it mean to put sin to death? That's what the text says. Why am I calling it a murderous war? Well, I'm calling it that because it's the framework and the language that Paul uses here. The first big truth in the text is this. We are to be killing sin. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, that is how you will experience life and light and freedom. You will live. If you are by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, last week we talked about having a mind set on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. If you're walking by the Spirit, if you're in Christ, putting to death the sins of the flesh, the sins of the body, then you will live. John Owen wrote a very complicated, hard-to-read book that people have, have reduced in many ways to help us to understand it about the concept of killing sin. And he took this idea and he wrote a question and a proposition. He said this, do you mortify sin in your life? And in our language, the word mortify really kind of means to, to be embarrassed, right? If you're mortified, it means you're really, really embarrassed. But mortify really and truly means to utterly destroy, to kill and he said, do you mortify sin within you? Do you make it your daily work to mortify sin within you? Be at this work while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. In other words, right now, if you're in Christ, either you are killing sin or you are being killed by sin. So what does it mean to kill sin? What does it mean to mortify 
the sin within me. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. First, it doesn't mean perfection, okay? It doesn't mean that you will become a person who no longer struggles with the temptation to, to sin. Before Jesus came into your life by the power of the Spirit, sin was an uncontested master, ruler in your life. You had no answer, no power to push against it. And you go, well, you know, Kevin, I wasn't that bad. You know, I was, uh, maybe I was a little kid. How much bad could I have done? Or, you know, I really wasn't like this awful person. I was just kind of, you know, I didn't have Christ. But remember, before you had Christ by the power of the Spirit, you had no answer. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your transgressions, and you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, to the, the spirit that leads the sons of disobedience. That's where you were before Christ. You had no, uh, no answer to this uncontested master, but when Jesus came to your life, when you became a Christian, now things change in your life. Now you have an answer for sin. Verse 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so you are for the very first time set free to walk in light and life and truth and to really truly have satisfaction in your life that you were always trying to get at but could never actually experience it. But now in light and in truth, you can experience satisfaction in a life that actually honors God. And I don't have to tell you that sin is still there and present and active and powerful in your life and, and that you're not warring on the inside with it because you know that, I know that. Galatians 5 really proves the point. Galatians 5, 17 says, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This is that war I told you about inside every Christian between a spirit that has been born again and a flesh this still remains. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please that are not good for you, that do not honor the Lord. And there's this part of you, not the whole of you, but there's a, a part of you that craves, that lusts after satisfaction apart from God and the things that he has given you. And it calls at you. It's the lure of sin in your life. And Galatians 5, 19 through 21 lists all of these in the words there are deeds of the flesh. Same thing in Romans 8, 13. The deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh, that they're not just in focus on their own. They, they flow out of this rage of misplaced desire that lies within us. I'll just read a few of them. The deeds of the flesh are evident. You can see them. They're out there. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, it says. Idolatry, which is the one that every single person is warring with every single day of their life. It's that thing where we go, some other created things are on the same level as the creator. I, I value them. I deem them to be worthy, worth sacrificing for, making it my aspiration or my ambition to have them, to achieve them, or to be something. It is an idol once I have said this thing is as important to me as simply knowing and being loved by God himself. Idolatry, the one we, we are all wrestling with, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. How about these? I don't know if you've seen these at all in the last couple of years. Disputes, dissension, and factions, right? We don't know anything about that. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and all kinds of things like this is the way it says it in Galatians. 
And I want you to see, and I want you to hear this, that that tension between flesh and spirit, that tension between the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the spirit, that internal war is a tension that will be lived in until you die or until Jesus returns, period, believe it. It's a tension that will remain in you. Here's another sharp line from John Owen. He says, when sin lets us alone, that's when we may let sin alone. You want to know when you can quit fighting the struggle, the temptation to sin? When sin leaves you alone, it'll leave you alone when you die or when Jesus returns, period. And so Paul, in this, this powerful just couple of lines here, he, he charges us as followers of Jesus who know who we are. And we're going to keep talking about that next week. Who are we really and truly if we're in Christ? He charges us to be completely uncompromising and waging war against indwelling sin in our lives. So what does it look like? What does it look like to kill sin, to be mortifying sin, to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Well, killing sin is the constant battle. It's the daily constant battle that we get up in the morning and we make a decision and we say, I'm going to fight today. Today's a day I'm going to fight. It's the constant battle against sin which we fight each and every day. It's the constant refusal to allow the eye to wonder and the mind to contemplate and the affections to go after anything that would draw us away from abundant life in Christ. It's the refusal to allow ourselves to go in a direction that would dishonor the Lord and would ultimately actually steal our joy, right? It is the constant exchange of the things that drain life from us, that debilitate us, that distract us for our perfect union in Jesus Christ that is assured to us by the Holy Spirit. It's not simply saying no to the things that we kind of know are wrong, but it's marked by the, the determined belief that I am union, unified in Christ. I am one with him. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that will be the mark that takes me through my life. And it's a desire to become everything that you can become by that union. A lot of people have this picture of God that he is like the big guy in the sky big guy in the sky who's watching and waiting and wagging. Watching and waiting and wagging. Oh my. Watching and waiting and wagging. Oh my. The God is up there and, and looking down on our lives and he's watching us and he's waiting for us to slip and he's got his finger wagging every time we fail. That's not the picture of the God that we read about in the Bible. That is not the God who sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, who did not sin, but sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh so that our sins be, could be condemned in his body. That's not the picture of Jesus, God in the flesh, incarnate, who came and who for the joy set before him endured the cross that we might have life and be set free. It's not the picture of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who's fully God, who comes to abide in us and live with us and be our helper and be our sustainer every day of our life. He's not up there watching and waiting and wagging. He's cheering for us to experience our highest potential in Christ. He is not, not like waiting to shame our failures. No, he is celebrating the fighters. That is our God, and he is he's for you. We're going to continue seeing this all throughout Romans 8. 
The point I want to make is that repentance, that, that word means to turn, and the biblical picture of repentance is to turn from me being the boss of my own life, me putting the, the keys to the car in my own hands or someone else's hands, and saying, Lord, I'm turning to you, and I want to walk in your ways, and I want to have my mind set on you and on your things, and I want to, Holy Spirit, would you lead me, would you guide me in all of my days? Repentance isn't just the way we begin the life with Christ. Repentance is the life with Christ. It is the life. It's every day getting up and saying, I'm going to turn from where temptation wants to take me, and I'm going to go where the Spirit leads me. Paul is teaching the Romans that that life in the Spirit is a constant exchange. It is constantly taking the things that would would depress us and disappoint us and distract us and debilitate us. It's an exchange of the things that promise much but deliver little for our perfect union in Christ, living in it and moving toward it. But he doesn't use a word like exchange or trade. He uses powerful language. He's concerned that we might just look at sin and say, well, you know, I can kind of control that. I can set it aside. I can tame it but it's sitting in readiness, ready to attack us. And so Paul says we have to put sin to death rather than putting up with sin in our life. Put it to death, kill it, destroy it, obliterate it, get up and do it every day, kill sin. I think what happens when we talk about how we deal with sin a lot of times is we put sin in the recycling bin, not in the trash can. And I've talked about this before What happens when you recycle something from your home? You put it in the recycling bin and the truck comes by and it takes it and it takes it to a place where it's melted down and reformed, reconstituted, remade, and then eventually, theoretically, where does it end up? Back in your home. And maybe it comes back into your home in the same form that it was in before, just remade again. Maybe it comes as an entirely new thing because it's been melted down and reprocessed and remade but it's coming back to your home. It'll be there soon. But what happens when you put something in the trash can? Well, the truck comes and takes it and it deposits it at a landfill and there it's buried and theoretically it eventually ceases to exist and it doesn't come back to your home. No one's going to dig it up out of the landfill and bring it to your house and put it on your kitchen table. And a lot of us, when we deal with sin in our lives, we we put it in the recycling bin, not the trash can. We go, I'm just going to put this out here. I'm just going to kind of move it aside. I'm I'm, I'm just, I'm going to move it. I'm going to tame it. I'm going to control it. It'll be good over there for a while. Paul knows something about sin in our life. Paul knows it's not just the outward actions of sin that hurt us. He knows that the outward actions come from a a deeper place. It's not just bodily deeds that are wrong, but bodily deeds flow from something that's wrong in our hearts. And so the killing of sin can't just be the fruit of sin. The killing of the sin has to begin with the, the root of sin, does it not? It's like cancer. Some of you know this deeply and personally. Cancer can't be healed simply by dealing with the outward signs of cancer. You've got to get down in there and you've got to cut it out. You've got to burn it out. You've got to obliterate it. You've got to mortify it if you want to live, right? And in the same way, when it comes to our sin, we can't just deal with the outward actions of sin, just these particular things that we go, ah, I probably shouldn't act this way. I need to curve my attitude here. I need to change. I need to not talk this way or do this thing. I get that. No, we've got to get down in there and have the Holy Spirit come in and begin to do surgery 
and cut out what's going on in our heart where I've got a misplaced desire or where I haven't actually received a promise from God and so I'm still looking for satisfaction in some other area or where I have held on to something and said, I'm going to have this one my way. God, you can have this and this and this, but that is mine. And it grows and it festers and it comes to a place to where now it begins to be, to be seen in our lives. So what will you do with your sin? Most people flirt with it or try to tame it or try to control it or try to hide from it or deny it or set it aside. Paul says when you wake up and, and until you sleep, you should make it your daily work to be killing sin. Now, I heard a pastor say this and it made a lot of sense to me. He said, now, trying to fight against indwelling sin without the Holy Spirit is like open hand slapping a bear in the face. And I like that because that's not going to go well for you at all. It's vivid. I get the idea. I'm not, I just watched the movie, The Great Outdoors. Remember that one, John Candy? That bear at the end, the big giant bald bear. Can you imagine just going up and popping him across the face? It will not go well for you. And that's why Paul doesn't say, hey, put to deed the deeds of the flesh. No, he says something even greater than that. He says we do so by or through the Holy Spirit right? That's the point two. Do so through the Holy Spirit. And then you put it all together and you say, Paul, what's the point here? He says, well, the point is you should be killing sin through the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what he says. That's how we experience life and freedom. Look at, at verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, that's the key, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, well, then you will live. If you're trying to defeat sin in your own strength, that's rowing hard. And I don't care how good you are at rowing. Paul was the captain of the rowing team before he met Christ. He was really good at following the rules, but he knew it would never get him there. It was not enough. If you live by the Spirit, and by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit is the centerpiece to defeating sin. The Holy Spirit, His presence, His power, He dwells within you if you are a Christian. The indwelling Spirit is there to fight the indwelling sin that is also there. He comes to us because life is hard, because life and this war is too much for us on our own. So He comes to us, and without the Holy Spirit, the Christian fighting against sin is just like the person who has no relationship at all with God trying to fight against sin. You have no more power than they you will have no more success in defeating sin than they will if you do not depend on the presence and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of us feel defeated by sin in our life because we've been trying to fight the impulses of sin through powers of the flesh. And it just doesn't work. You can't fight the impulses of sin through the powers of flesh, and when? Paul knew this. In Romans 7, verse 18, he said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. How many of you feel like this? I want to live in God's will and his ways and honor him and have abundant life. I want to, but the doing of good is just not there. That's why Philippians 3, 3 says, those who are in Christ put no confidence in the flesh. Don't put confidence in your ability to row hard and to achieve sinlessness, to defeat that sin that is tempting you, that's plaguing your life. 
You've got to depend on the Holy Spirit. You have to have the power and the presence of the Spirit to fight and defeat the temptation to sin. I'll give you another illustration of this, simple illustration. It's like having a self-propelled lawnmower, right? I'm behind my lawnmower, and my hands are on the handle, and I am walking with it, and my eyes are open, and I'm out there in the sun, and I'm sweating, and I am, I'm doing work, but the power that is driving me ahead is the self-propelled lawnmower. In fact, the power of the lawnmower is the thing that's spinning the blade and actually having an effect in cutting the grass, but I have to be there with it for me to experience it and to see it at work in front of me. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. I think some people think that this is a peripheral thing in the Christian life. You know, I, I came to church, I heard the message of the gospel, it sounded good to me. I said, hallelujah, amen, I said a prayer, and now I am a Christian. As far as like, you know, going to wage war against sin and all that, that's kind of for the upper level Christian or, you know, maybe when I clear a few things out, I'm really busy right now. I don't have time for a war. That takes a whole lot of energy and attention. Maybe, maybe someday. This isn't a peripheral issue in the Christian life. This is the Christian life to Paul. This is as central as it gets in the Christian life. For Paul, I mean, you call it walking by the Spirit, you call it bearing fruit by the Spirit, you call, call it having a mind set on the things of the Spirit, you call it being led by the Spirit. He answers all, uh, uses all his phrase to answer this question, how do you act towards holiness and how do you act towards sinfulness in a way in which it's actually not you but it's the Holy Spirit at work in and through you? How do we do this? I'm going to answer it with five statements, and these are five ways or five tips to fight sin according to the scriptures, what we're given, the Holy Spirit uses to defeat sin in our life. There is in the seat back around you somewhere a card that looks like this. We're going old school this morning. We have a fill in the blank, and here's why I did this. This is something that every one of us are wrestling with right now. This isn't a message for a few of you. It's a message for all of you and for me. And I wanted to give you something this morning that you can, for a moment, actively learn, participate in as we learn together and take with you and put this somewhere where you're going to see it because it's practical and it's biblical. It's incredibly helpful to you. So grab one of these cards, grab a pen. If not, you just have to take pictures as we run through this. Five ways, five tips for fighting against sin. First, if I'm going to fight, I have to have the right mindset. I'm going to have to be honest. That's your first blank. I'm going to have to be honest about my struggle with sin. A lot of us don't want to be honest about it. When we look in the mirror, we know it's there. When we're in a quiet place, we feel maybe some shame or some guilt, and we push it aside we don't want people to know. We don't want to own it. We don't want to, to even talk about it because if we do, then we know something has to be done about it. Nothing will be done about it if you, you hide it or deny it, if you divert it, if you try to tame it or control it. You've got to be honest about your struggle with sin. Do you realize this, that, that like all of the letters in the New Testament warn Christians about their struggle with sin? That would be absolutely pointless if Christians weren't always struggling with sin. <laughs> that would render half the New Testament a little pointless if we thought that we didn't struggle with sin. Paul says it this way. He goes, this is as clear a statement as you can have and one that we all need to come to a place where we can say. He says, I find that evil 
is present in me. Even me, the one who wishes to do good. That's Romans 7, 21. David, man after God's own heart, knew that his heart wasn't always right. Sometimes he knew what to confess. Other times he didn't know what to confess. So in Psalm 139, he goes, God, search my heart. Help me to see all of the hidden things and bring them into the light that you may lead me in your ways. And sometimes that's the step we need to take. I know I struggle with sin, but it's probably more there than I I even realize. Lord, would you search my heart? Would you help me to see the hidden things and lead me in your ways? James 5.16 gives us good advice. It says, "Confess, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And I don't think that's an invitation just to tell everyone everything. I do think it's an invitation to find some faithful brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you say, I need your help. If I'm going to walk in my union with Christ, if I'm going to defeat sin, we're all sinning. I'm being honest with you. I need your help. I'm going to tell you my stuff. I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I'm going to fight for you and you fight for me. It's good advice. You've got to be honest about our struggle with sin. If you want to mortify the deeds of the flesh, here's my second tip. A second way to be killing sin is to grow, is your word, grow in affection. That's your blank. Grow in affection for God. This is about loving God more than loving your sin. And I think you go, well, Kevin, that's ridiculous. Why would I love my sin like I love the Lord? I am absolutely convinced that all sin at its root comes out of misplaced affections. That every sin at its root comes, flows out of misplaced affections where I have loved something more than I have. I have loved God. Go read Psalm 34 this week. Go read all of it. Sit in it. Read it five times. Read it 10 times. Read it 20 times if that's what it takes to get it. Read Psalm 34. Philippians 3.8, Paul does this very thing. He grows in affection for God more than his affection for his, his sin or other pursuits in this life. He says, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I believe if you put your mind on truly seeing God for who he is and understanding what he has done to demonstrate and prove his love for you, you will find yourself growing in affection for him in such a way that it overwhelms all other pursuits in your life. Charles Spurgeon, he, he did this, and, and he made this statement. He said, if Christ has died for me, if he really did that, I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. And I pray that that would be the message that comes to your heart, that you would agree with him as you grow in affection for God third statement. A third way for Christians to kill sin by the Spirit's power is to meditate. Write that down. Meditate on God's words. Ask the Holy Spirit to make the Scriptures come alive for you. And I realize that the word meditate carries baggage. You may immediately think like Eastern meditation, which is an emptying of the mind. You may picture yourself sitting in your bedroom with your crisscross applesauce in your hands like this going, oh, what is happening now? Christian meditation, biblical meditation, isn't an emptying of the mind. It's a filling of the mind of the things of God. It's Psalm 1-2 that tells me I meditate on the law of God. It means to chew on it, to be absorbed in it, to consume it, right? To stay with it until I get it. So meditate on God's words. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, hiding 
God's words in your heart may be the very most practical thing that you can do as a Christian to fight the temptation to sin in your life. Not just to fight the temptation, but to win the war of the mind. When our thoughts are consumed with God's truth, it will, it will stay with us. It will press back when temptation comes for us. Psalm 119 says this, your word I've treasured in my heart. Why? So that I will not sin against you. You see that? I've treasured your, your words in my heart because I know they have a power against sin. Remember Ephesians 6 says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit, right? It's a great weapon if you're going to have a murderous war with indwelling sin in your life. Dwell on the word of God, meditate on it. Fourth way to destroy sin in your life is this, it's to pray without ceasing. Write that down. Pray without ceasing because ongoing communication with God, ongoing communion with God will satisfy your soul in a way that will keep you from being someone who is prone to wonder and prone to leave the one you love. Ongoing communion with God. First John 3 says when you're in communion with God, talk to him about your sins. Talk to him about your struggles. Ask his help. Ask his fortification. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see your sin and fight your sin in his power, in his wisdom, in his might. Uh, Hebrews 4 tells us to approach the throne of, of grace, right? Why? Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then it says, let us hold fast this confession. In other words, let us go back to our salvation. Let us go back to the gospel that saved us. Let that not waver. Don't forget who you are in Christ. Approach the throne of grace, not as someone who has to go and clean their act up before they go and talk to God. No, we live from, not for, from a place of acceptance, from a place of approval, from a place of being dearly loved, not for that. We don't grovel, we don't crawl, we don't clean up and then go to God. No, no, because Jesus has come for us and has saved us, we are welcomed to the throne of grace, even with our struggle, even with our sin. Last one, a fifth way to put sin to death in our lives is to practice obedience. Write that down, practice obedience, doing his will, walking in his ways, learning to love what he loves, really loving what he loves and hating what he hates will hold up when, when severe temptation comes your way. First John 3 says this, no one who is born of God practices sin. It doesn't say no one who is born of God will struggle with sin, but no one who is born of God will make it their habit to sin. No. Alternatively, children of God, children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother, right? We practice righteousness. We practice obedience. We make it our habit our daily habit to get up and say, Lord, what do you will, then I will, right? Ephesians 5, 18 reminds us to be filled with the Spirit. It says, don't be filled with things that lead to dissipation in your lives, but be filled with the Spirit, which leads to life in the Spirit. And, and if you read that in the original language, it gives you the idea of keep being filled with the Spirit. Don't ever stop being filled with the Spirit. Always be relying upon the Spirit that you might walk in His ways. So this morning, talking about a thing that every one of us, everyone, it's something for everyone here, everyone online, everyone in the room, the experience of humanity. Struggling with sin, it's called being human. 
It's called having a sin nature. Thanks be to God that he saved us as we are but won't leave us as we are. Thanks be to Christ who died to give us life. Thanks be to the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus, reminded by Paul, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? The living God is in you. So this morning, I want to take just a couple of moments before we sing, and I want to pray about this murderous war. I want us to take the charge together and as a church, be a church that engages not the sin out there, but the sin in here first. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come this morning of people who in our very being, deep within us, we want abundant life. We wanted abundant life before we knew how to receive it. That's why every human craves glory. That's why every human craves satisfaction. We were made, you made us to crave those things, but we will only be satisfied when we find those things in you. Would you help us to set our mind on your things, Holy Spirit? The things that you love, the things that you will for us, Would you help us to be a people who will not be content to walk according to the flesh? And where you are right now, I know this is like sensitive stuff. It's it's deep and, and can be very painful stuff, but would you just for a moment, would you ask like David did in Psalm 139, God, search my heart and bring to my mind those places where my heart is rooted in the things of the flesh. Lord, we don't want this because we want to feel ashamed. We want this because we want to to walk in light and life. And the struggle with sin keeps us from it. It keeps us from abundant life. It keeps us from glorifying you. But where you are for just a moment, ask the Lord to help you to see Lord, with my mind, and you can pray this silently where you are, with my mind right now on the things that I have given over to temptation, on the things in which I'm failing, I thank you and praise you that I am forgiven if I am in Christ. And I will not go back under condemnation because you have promised there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You took on the condemnation for this sin 
that I'm thinking about right now. I'm set free. I am forgiven. Now, Lord, I feel shame. Help me to know where that comes from, that it's not from you, that it's from the evil one. It's from my spiritual enemy that wants me to believe lies and not walk in abundant life. Help me to set my mind, Holy Spirit, on you and on your things and on the the help that you give that I would see the truth about who I am and the truth about what these things are doing to my life to steal, to kill, and to destroy all that God would want from me. And Holy Spirit, by your power, let's go to war. I make no presumption that this temptation will be gone tomorrow. I know it will not. So Holy Spirit, when I lie down tonight, when I wake in the morning, will you give a battle cry in my heart and will I charge with your lead and be committed to fighting a murderous war against sin inside my life so that I might be set free and might shine might shine in the light that Christ died to give me. And Lord, I do pray that our church would be a church that fights in this way. I pray that you would beautify Legacy Church, beautify the lives and the families of Legacy Church for your glory, that we would be pleasing to you and that we would walk in freedom, that we would walk in light and life and truth and grace and that we would, by that walk, be a shining beacon to those who walk in darkness. We can only do this by your presence and power, Spirit. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.